Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 through 19. This is my life work, helping people understand and respond to this message. It came as a sheer gift to me, a real surprise, God handling all the details. When it came to presenting the message to people who had no background in God's way, I was the least qualified of any of the available Christians. God saw to it that I was equipped, but you can be sure that it had nothing to do with my natural abilities. And so here I am, preaching and writing about things that are way over my head, the inexhaustible riches and generosity of Christ. My task is to bring out in the open and make plain what God who created all of this in the first place has been doing in secret and behind the scenes all along. Through followers of Jesus, like yourselves gathered in churches, this extraordinary plan of God is becoming known and talked about even among the angels. All this is proceeding along lines planned all along by God and then executed in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus. When we trust in him, we're free to say whatever needs to be said, bold to go wherever we need to go. So don't let my present trouble on your behalf get you down. Be proud. My response is to get down on my knees before the Father, this magnificent Father who parcels out all heaven and earth. I ask him to strengthen you by his spirit, not a brute strength, but a glorious inner strength, that Christ will live in you as you open the door and invite him in. And I ask him that with both feet planted firmly on love, you'll be able to take in with all followers of Jesus the extravagant dimensions of Christ's love. Reach out and experience the breadth. Test its length. Plumb the depths. Rise to the heights. Live full lives, full in the fullness of God. This is the word of the Lord. So far, we have examined a lot of complex, beautiful, um, historic ideas about what happened on the cross, why it happened, and why that matters. Um, and so before I get into uh, what I'm going to talk about today, I have several prefaces, if you will. The first one is that Melinda said in the very first week that she would never call you a heretic for what you believe here. I'm going to call all of us a heretic um, because depending on where you land in time and space, Everything that we believe at one time has been heresy. And everything we call heresy today at one time was most likely orthodox belief somewhere at some point. Um, that's part of the reason we created Eat, Strengths, and Orthodoxy was so that we could explore those bounds in, in different topics in different ways. But the reason that heresy is kind of something that we need to leave to the side is that we can't talk about our theology of atonement without other aspects of theology being inextricably woven together. So when you think about theology, which is what you believe about God and Christianity, it's not like puzzle pieces that you just find the pieces that fit and then you have your picture. It is a tapestry and some bits are gonna get frayed, some colors are gonna become outdated for you, but it's all going to be part of a single picture, and you can't separate them out and look at them individually. So our beliefs about what happened at the cross are tied together with what we believe about the nature of God, the nature of man, sin, heaven and hell, salvation, what it is and what it means. 
I'm not going to talk about all of my steps to get where I am now. And the reason is I chose to reject beliefs that some of you still hold dear and true. I rejected them because they reflected broken and toxic views that I had about who God is, who we are, what sin is. Part of my healing was to release those toxic views and come to a different understanding. But I don't know what fills in those gaps and crevices for you. You might not have the same toxic views I did that made those theories um, untenable for me. And so I don't want to disparage somebody else's belief by projecting onto them the same toxicity that I experienced. Does that make sense? So this is one time you're not going to get a lot of autobiography from me because I don't know that that's overly helpful. That being said, anybody who wants to have that conversation, I am happy to, and I will do so as respectfully as I can. Um, my second caveat here is that this conversation <clears throat> and conversations like this are far too important and far too big and far too mysterious, I think intentionally, for us to draw lines in the sand and say, if you don't believe the way I do, you're excluded. It's too big and it's too vague. And we just cannot have that level of audacity and still claim that we have humility. And so the way my friend Corey puts it, the reality is I believe Jesus was vague about these kinds of super big things on purpose because his point was to get us to stop obsessing about sin and to start thinking about what it meant to live out the love and grace and generosity and power that Jesus was offering to us. We get so preoccupied with sin and punishment and all of these things that we have wrapped up in our human understanding that we forget that the message was, you're free. You're free. You're free. You're loved. You've been given power live that out, do that work. And he, even with the disciples, he had to tell them over and over again, stop focusing on when I'm going to return. Here is how you live until I do. I think that that's important. And so, so embrace the mystery, embrace the vagueness, and don't draw your lines too hard. Um, third caveat. I personally believe that scripture is a uniquely divine source of truth that has been given to us, especially and specifically when read through the context of the life of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, and the love of Jesus. Um, we once had somebody from the Mennonite church come, who many of us love dearly, um, who talked about the idea that for him and for his church, that's their whole approach to scripture. Jesus is the lens. We all take a lens to scripture. I think if you're in this room or watching this online, you're probably comfortable with that idea at this point, that we all have worldviews and lenses that we bring to scripture and that we read through. I do believe that scripture should be read through the lens of Jesus. That being said, it is a uniquely divine source of truth. It is not the only or even always the best source of truth. I think that every single theory that we've talked about so far 
could be refuted or supported through scripture. And I think Melinda did a really good job of showing that, <laughs> especially that first week. Everything I'm going to say today could be refuted through scripture. I could defend it. You could refute it. That can sometimes be a healthy discourse. Usually it's destructive. But that being said, we create narratives in the absence of head knowledge. We do it all the time. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. And we bring those narratives to light through our other sources of knowledge. We all have the ability to access mystical knowledge. We all have intuition. I believe the spirit dwells in each one of you. And so there is truth that the spirit leads you to that is different than the truth that the spirit will lead somebody else to. All of these things animate the narratives that we create. Those narratives serve a purpose and they can be good, but we have to hold them loosely. Um, most of what I believe about this is gonna come from Peter Rollins. I, I can't even, I tried to come up with a source list, guys, just read all of his books, watch all of his things online, go to all of his classes, and you'll have an idea of why I believe most of what I believe at this point. But one thing that he says about this specifically is, when we speak into the void, we create lifeless idols. When God speaks into the void, the void teems with life. So leave space in your narratives for God to speak into it. And if it means the narrative changes, it's okay. And it doesn't mean that you're wishy-washy and it doesn't mean that you were wrong in some horrible, heady way. It just means that you've been invited to change. And that's a good thing, right? Like we all agree that if we're not always growing and changing, that in and of itself can be an issue. So um, those are my caveats. What I'm going to finish talking about today is my personal view that the cross was meaningless in and of itself. There is truth to be found in all of the different theories we've talked about. Sin is a thing. It does create a type of separation. We do need to be liberated. I, I don't know if anybody in this room could honestly say they've never felt that, that thing that pulls you where you don't want to go or compels you to what you don't want to do. But we all need freedom. We all need release. And we all need to be convinced of the love of God. I think that what we mean by things like sin matters, though, in that conversation. So my personal definition of sin for a very long time has been anything that does damage to my relationships. Yes, with you. Also with myself. I believe that we can do damage directly to our relationship with God. And I think that our relationship to the created world is also part of that equation. So for me, if I know through consumer reports and headlines that there is a store that is exploiting labor in third world countries, and I choose to ignore that because I need a cheap t-shirt, that is a choice that I make in our world, but it's a sinful one. Because I know that I am perpetuating a system that is continuing the exploitation of others. If you abuse an animal, I'm not talking about hunting, that's a, a different thing, but if you're abusing an animal just to cause pain, that's a sin. Like, <laughs> that's not just like a bad choice. Like, that's a sin against God's creation. 
when we harbor self-loathing to the point that it affects how we live in the world, and we know that we have the ability to, to work on that and we choose not to and instead to sit in it, it's not a condemnation, but that is still sin. When we destroy ourselves, that is also sin. My friend Vicki has an additional definition of sin that I think factors in. It's a little more simple than mine. Sin is the illusion of our separation from God. That idea brings with it the, the reality that we're on a journey of getting rid of the blinders, of getting rid of the veils. All of those things that are put in front of us that say there's a separation, those are lies. And so part of our journey on this earth is to find those lies, find the truth that speaks to them, and allow ourselves to be made whole in how we view those things. Again, it's like the air we breathe and that we move through all around us. It's taking the time to acknowledge that that air is there for a moment, rather than continuing to believe that we're somehow separate. We talk about that at Imago all the time. There isn't an us or them. The reality is we are all connected, right? We're connected to each other, we're connected to the earth, we're connected to people who are not in this room. We're connected to people that we hate. We're all part of a family. And part of our spiritual work is to find and eliminate those places where we have fallen into believing that there is a separateness. Sin is not meant to bring shame. And you don't have to agree with me here. But I believe that shame comes when there is a reflection of my worth as a person. Shame carries with it an idea that my worth is diminished because of a thing. But that conversation has been addressed and the, the case for that is closed. You are a child of God. You are made in his image. You are an ambassador of the kingdom of God. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. I don't care who you are, where you are, what you're doing. That is the truth of who you are because our story begins in Genesis 1 not Genesis 3 with the fall. So if shame is what is coming to you, I strongly encourage you, talk to a friend, talk to a spiritual leader, a spiritual director or a therapist, and get at the root of that shame, because that is never God's desire for you. Guilt is different, and guilt is real. <laughs> um, guilt is something that, that true sin can lead to, but that guilt, again, is not meant to be a reflection of who you are, it's meant to invite you into change. I believe that sin indicates a place where we haven't fully experienced the freedom or love of God yet, where we need to do some work, maybe where we need to heal, sometimes where we need to actively choose to stop being a jerk. Like, sometimes you realize, I've been a jerk, I didn't know I was a jerk, I have to stop being a jerk. That can be sin, but it's, it's a, that one's like the easiest one to get away from, right? Like, stop being a jerk, I can choose that. <laughs> Um, but I believe that at the end of the day, God has compassion for our weaknesses. Um, a friend of mine who happened to be a monk, we had a conversation about sin once where he said that he believes that God has infinite compassion for us in the sins of our weakness, in those places where we can't find a way to do better within ourselves, but that God has less compassion. Again, Catholic context, give it, give it some, some margin, but... God has less compassion for those sins that we willfully choose. Things like bullying, um, 
pride, using other people intentionally to get where we want to go. And sometimes I think it can be helpful to look at sin that way. Um, we beat ourselves up for the things that are weakest in us and continue to choose things that do damage. And I think that maybe the approach to those things should be reversed. I also believe that God has compassion for our tiredness. A lot of us are weary right now. This is not meant to beat you up. Um, sin at the end of the day is a matter of fact, right? We can look at it and we can address it or we can choose not to, but it's not meant to bring more heaviness. I think that God has compassion for our trauma-informed worldviews where we don't know yet that we're seeing things differently. I think God has compassion for our neuro-non-normativities. Um, we don't all think the same. We don't all process the same. We've all been through different things that lead to different weaknesses. What's sin for one person might not be sin for somebody else. We can get into that another time. Um, but at the end of the day, what you believe sin is determines what you believe we're saved from. So I felt it only fair to let you know that's where I'm coming from. If you look at human history as a species, as far back as you go, um, we have record of seeking systems of religion or government or social structures that can make us the best versions of ourselves, individually and as communities. Even our most ancient forefathers were trying to find a way to, to make this happen. They wanted to free us from our flaws, and the way we've done that is by defining and punishing or instructing us away from things, burning offerings, dancing, mixing concoctions, making offerings, uh, venerating ourselves, creating prisons, creating gurus, writing holy texts, establishing rules, and then killing or rejecting or shaming those who disagree with us. That's like our thing, right, as humans? And so Jesus, the one that we call the Holy One, God wrapped in human flesh, came into a world of Roman government and oppression, profitless and factioned uh, historic Judaism, and a fractured national Israel. His entire life was centered on bringing the idea of an upside-down kingdom. Things like praying for people who curse you, doing your spiritual work away from the eyes of admirers, never turning a blind eye to someone in need, even if it's a high holy day, paying to Caesar what is Caesar's and not allowing his coin to lead you into shady business practices. Forgive, include, eat, play, enjoy your time with your children, consider everyone a part of the family, party well and celebrate all of these milestones of human existence. And in absolutely all of the joy and grief and spirituality and work and sweat and sex and food and disappointment, be always so aware of the love of God in and around you. That was the message of Jesus, right? That was the good news. If you read the life of Jesus, in the Gospels, chronologically, A, you'll find out he's not as schizophrenic as he seems. Um, there was way more of a method to his madness than you get when you read the Gospels the way they're, they're listed out. Um, but you'll see that there was the lower part of Israel, and then there was Samaria. We've talked about like the Good Samaritan 
Jews hate, hated the Samaritans. And then there was the northern part. And the northern part was, because it was further away from the seat of power, Jerusalem was in the south, it was a little more loosey-goosey. Um, uh, you see more non-Jews around. Um, there tends to be a lot less talk about like the law and the leaders. Um, but when Jesus starts using the phrase, um, my time is drawing near, chronologically, you'll notice that he moves his ministry more to the south. And he actually starts to replicate a lot of the teachings, miracles, and signs from when he was up north. That is actually why you get things like two different Sermon on the Mounts, two different feedings um, with fish and loaves, things like that. He does them, potentially, we don't know for sure, but it looks like he might have done them once earlier in his ministry in the north and then later in his ministry in the south. Here's why. Those teachings and signs made him such a danger to the religious and social leaders of the day that they would rather kill him than acknowledge his presence, his existence, and that maybe his message held truth. They so fervently believed in his danger that they were able to convince the secular government leader to come along with them and support the murder of this prophet. And so, for healing people and preaching love and sharing the power that Jesus believed we all had, Jesus was murdered by the powers of religion, society, and government. There was, in my opinion, no mystical need for Jesus to die on a cross. When we see passages that talk about Jesus being obedient, even to death on a cross, what I personally believe is that obedience was to an unwavering commitment to that upside-down kingdom, that he was going to live it and preach it and show it and invite people into it, knowing the danger that he was posing, knowing the threat that he was, and knowing that there was a good chance that it would get him killed. That's the obedience that we're called to. Jesus invites us into a way of living in the world, not a belief system necessarily, but a way of living in the world that will both transform it and put us at odds with those who believe they have the power to transform us, save us, or heal us. Does that make sense? Okay. I believe that none of those things can free us. No system of religion, including Christianity, no system of government, no social media influence, no fashion trend, no governmental representative can truly set us free or bring us into the transformation that we need. The cross wasn't where the power was. The cross was a brutal, violent, meaningless event in history when all the goodness of God that was wrapped up in human flesh was murdered by her own creation while keeping forgiveness on the lips of Jesus to the very end. As Peter Rollins puts it, it is the abandonment of God by God, and it is the true death of faith and hope. And if we left it at the cross, we would be left with true meaninglessness. But never has there been a more important but.
because Jesus was killed. And then the temple curtain that divided people from the Holy of Holies ripped supernaturally from the top to the bottom. And after three agonizing days, we see power explode onto the earth like never before and like never again. A stone is rolled away and a tomb is found empty. And a nail-scarred man invites his friends to the beach for breakfast. And a desperate-to-believe follower fills his hands with the pierced flesh of his friend's side. The Spirit of God, previously only ever reserved for prophets, priests, or kings, was breathed onto this group of blue-collar workers, and they were sent to take this weird little message out into the world. And it changed the world forever. In that unbelievable moment of resurrection, I do genuinely believe something mystical changed in the fabric of our existence. But it changed through all time in history. People who had died thousands of years ago, people who wouldn't be born for thousands of years. It changed the fabric of what it means to be humans on this earth in relationship with the divine. And what it changed was it stripped that veil away that told us that we were ever separate. Our access to the divine is now known to be undiluted, unmeasured, and uninhibited. You need no priest or authority or curtain between you and the divine. You are literally the house of the Holy Spirit. Our story is the story of a mindlessly, senselessly murdered God brought back to life to forever change the tapestry of human existence. The delusion of separation is removed. There is nothing holding the divine back from the unworthy because unworthy was never a thing. Please hear that. Unworthy was never a thing. You've never been unworthy. You can't be unworthy. And so let that part go, if that's something you still hold on to. It was never a thing. The power of the living God resides in us, and we are free to reflect our unique, quirky, weird manifestations of God into the world. And we're offered power over sin perpetually. That doesn't mean it won't take work, or help, or 12-step programs, sometimes medication, therapy, forgiveness between each other. Yeah, it's going to take all of that but we aren't abandoned into our brokenness. We are loved and we are free, and our work is to continue to discover how to live that out. Death did not have the last word. Systems of oppression will not have the last word. Racism and violence and hunger and rape and hatred will not have the last word. That's the promise Jesus gives us. That's what the resurrection tells us. We might not see the end of it in our lifetimes, but the hope that we hold on to is that those things do not have the last word. This resurrection life that we are invited into when we choose the path of following Jesus is to engage the tensions and the apparent contradictions. We beat weapons of violence into gardening tools. We empower lawmakers to change systems of government that keep people in slavery. We transform societies to take care of the marginalized. We grow our own worldviews to make space for people who don't fit in our binaries. 
We see miracles of equality and understanding and generational healing happen, and we love. And all the bigness and color and nuance and transformation that word can possibly hold. And this, my friends, is the miracle of the resurrection. So today, if you're sitting at the cross and you're feeling that aggressive energy of the world beating against you, please know that you're not alone. If you're weeping at the tomb, waiting for your miracle, you are not alone. If you are suspended in a perpetual Holy Saturday, full to the brim with the void of God, you are not alone. This is what it means for us to be in spiritual community. We are here to hold this with you and hold you while you sit through this. And some of us who are standing in Resurrection Hope today are going to need you to do the same thing for us when the world knocks it out of us again. That's what this is, guys. So take some time to look at what you believe as we go through this. Like was pointed out a couple of different times, just look and see if what you believe about sin tracks with what you believe about humankind. What does your belief about God's nature reflect about your view of yourself? We encourage you as we're getting ready to wrap up this series, pull at those threads a little bit. Take the time, and if you find places of inconsistency that you want to tackle, never hesitate to reach out because you don't have to tug at them alone. And we want to be here to tell you that because you tug on that thread, it doesn't mean the whole thing is going to dismantle. You might end up with a pile of thread, but you're going to get a new pattern to apply that to, and you'll be able to create something even more beautiful out of it. So as we close today, um, and again, as I said, almost everything I've said today is some accumulation of Shane Claiborne and uh, Peter Rollins. But uh, Shane wrote an essay called Holy Week in an Unholy World. And it's specifically about Holy Week. Um, but I want to read this, and this is how I'm going to end. After describing um, in beautiful and horrible detail um, the violence and injustices leading to the crucifixion, he says this. And so it went. This man, who many believe was the Holy One that the prophets spoke of, the long-awaited Messiah, God incarnate, love with skin on, was executed brutally. He died with his body convulsing as his lungs collapsed, with vultures swarming overhead, hoping to clean up after the execution. There is nothing more evil than what happened that good Friday. Most of his friends deserted him and left him to fend for himself. Some of them were so scared they denied even knowing him. Only the women stayed. The long loneliness was so agonizing, so gut-wrenching, he felt like God had bailed on him. Among his last words were these, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But even though it was a gruesome week, love gets the last word. We call it Good Friday because it wasn't just death that made the news, but resurrection. The empire, the cross, the bloodshed was not the end of the story. On the cross, Jesus made a spectacle of evil. He exposed the hatred we are capable of, and he triumphed over that hatred with love. He died with forgiveness on his lips, just as he came to set the oppressed free 
he also came to set the oppressors free. Holy Week is not just about the resurrection. It is also about the cross. Without Good Friday, there is no Easter. But we can't leave Jesus on the cross. In the end, this is a resurrection story. Holy Week is about a God who suffers with us, bleeds with us, cries with us, hopes with us. As we celebrate Holy Week, let's connect the passion of Christ with the passion of the streets. As we remember the violence inflicted on Jesus, we remember the crucified peoples of our world, the victims of violence today. And a little bit later, he says, God understands our pain. That is good theology for Good Friday. And the kind of theology only happens when we connect the Bible to the world we live in. It happens when we worship and activism, when our worship and our activism meet. We don't have to choose between faith and action. In fact, we can't have one without the other. Let's get out into the sanctuaries and into the streets.